Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is April 4th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Yara Asi. Yara is one of FMEP's 2023 Palestinian non-resident fellows. She's also an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida in the School of Global Health Management and Informatics and a visiting scholar at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University in her capacity as co-director of the Palestine Program for Health and Human Rights. Yara's research agenda focuses on global health, human rights, and development in fragile populations, and she has published widely on these topics in academic presses and popular media, including the New York Times and 972 Magazine and many others. Today, we're going to focus on Palestinian health. This will be a sort of public health 101 for Palestinians and looking at the importance of public health and public health expertise for Palestinians overall. So Yara, I wanna ask you to talk to us, to start by talking to us about the basic structure of the health system that's available to Palestinians and particularly Palestinians in the occupied territories in, West, in the West Bank and Gaza. And I just, I, I wanna mention that or note as I'm, I'm sure you will, the health system directly reflects not only concerns of people everywhere about accessibility and cost and quality of healthcare, but also all of the issues that are directly impacted by Israeli apartheid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Sarah Ann, and thanks for um, that first question. I think this gives us a good opportunity to kind of present some basic information, um, especially for people who may be unfamiliar with the Palestinian health system. And again, as you noted, especially for those in the occupied territories. Um, although we are focusing today on Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, of course, there are Palestinian citizens of Israel with access to an entirely different health system and Palestinian refugees outside of the territories that have their own health challenges. And these are topics that are worthy of their own podcast or webinar, and I hope to cover those over the course of the fellowship as we move on this year. Um, but for today, I think um, as I start the fellowship, it's important to first get a sense of the health accessible to Palestinians in the occupied territories, because I think that's an opportunity to learn so much about their overall circumstances and often overlooked opportunity. You know, health is so often siloed when really health is connected to every aspect of our life. Um, so overall, Palestinians in the occupied territories have about four different primary actors in the healthcare system. Um, there are government actors. So the Palestinians do have a ministry of health that was established with the Oslo Accords. Um, under the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and as of 2007, under Hamas in the Gaza Strip. This is what we would call the public health system. Um, but the system doesn't really meet the needs of, of the Palestinians that it's meant to serve. There are twice as many non-government hospitals as there are government hospitals, and the government has only added three hospitals since 2010, which, when you look at the population growth, is really insufficient. And these facilities are also less likely to have open beds or have all the needed equipment. So we could not imagine going to a hospital or an emergency room and them turning us away because they don't have beds, right? When we heard that during the coronavirus, that was seen as like this indication that something is really wrong. But this happens 
on a regular basis in public hospitals. There simply aren't enough beds or there, there may be beds, but there's not enough staff to, to see you. Um, so then to fill in some of those gaps, there is this um, non-government organization NGO sector of both local NGOs and international NGOs of, you know, that are very small, a staff of a few people to staffs of hundreds of people that work on different kinds of health issues. So they may focus on trauma care, they may focus on mental health, they may focus on women or children or the health of people with disabilities, um, et cetera. And their ability to function is entirely dependent on the size of their staff and their funding any given year. That's just how it kind of works. It's not meant to replace a health system, right? It's just a supplement. Um, these NGOs are primarily funded by donors. So either donor countries or private donations by individuals, just like any other NGO. Um, then there's um, UNRWA, which is the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees um, that serves Palestinians displaced within the occupied territories in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. Um, so not every Palestinian has access to these services, only for those that are registered refugees um, or their descendants from 1948. And they have a very robust health infrastructure with many, many facilities. Um, again, it's almost entirely funded by donors. Um, they have in the West Bank 43 primary health facilities and 22 in the Gaza Strip. Although because most more of the population of the Gaza Strip are registered refugees, they utilize these services a lot more than in the West Bank. And lastly, you have the private sector. So again, this is none of this is, is atypical so far, right? Which is primarily only affordable to those with the financial needs, means to pay for it. Um, they're typically known as higher quality. Um, studies have shown that they have more highly trained staff. It's easier for them to recruit internationally because they can pay higher rates and they're more likely to pay um, frequently doctors that work in the public health system in Palestine have gone on strike because they haven't been paid for weeks or their pay was docked or something else like that. Um, the private facilities also have more access to resources. It's easier for them to kind of apply for permits to get stuff. And just in general, I think if you asked most Palestinians, they would say the private facilities are better than the public ones. Um, and we're, we're really seeing this sector grow in response to the other sectors deteriorating. Um, but of course, it's not accessible to everybody. And I, of course, um, which is the topic that's been kind of a focus of much of my work is the fact that many Palestinians, either because they have to or because they're able to, leave the territories altogether to get care. So they're Palestinians living in Palestine, but they're leaving, the, they're, they're not accessing the Palestinian health system. So there's the system of medical permits um, for Palestinians from both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank to either go into Israel or East Jerusalem or for Palestinians from Gaza, sometimes even just to go to the West Bank to get care that's unavailable to them in the territories. And the, the reason that care is unavailable is primarily because of Israeli restrictions, which I know we'll get into in a future question. Um, and it's important, I think, to note here that despite sometimes this being cited as like a sign of um, uh, you know, altruism on behalf of Israel for like, oh, well, we're offering care to the, these Palestinians. The PA is paying for these transfers. And actually, Israel won't approve the permit unless they have a financial guarantee from the PA. So this is 
money, Palestinian tax money, that is essentially leaving the Palestinian healthcare system to often pay for services in Israel. Um, and then Palestinians in East Jerusalem, of course, have access to, um, East Jerusalem has this network of, of more advanced hospitals that offer cancer care and other kinds of things, but they also face um, Israeli neglect and repression, and the PA is unable to operate there. And so when you couple that with Israeli neglect, sometimes you have this large care vacuum. We saw that at the beginning of COVID when they attempted to set up a uh like a testing facility in East Jerusalem, but it was um, sponsored by members of the PA. And so Israel shut it down. Um, and then again, for Palestinians who have the money to do so, they may travel abroad. So to Jordan, to Lebanon, to Egypt, um, especially for like eye care, dental care, um, cosmetic surgery to get care that's either better in those countries or again is unavailable where they are, but they don't have to apply for a permit. They're able to just travel somewhere else entirely. So that's that's the basic structure. <laughs> Thank you. That was so great. So just to, to, re to reflect back. Yes. So there's the the public system under the PA yep. and in the West Bank or under Hamas in Gaza, there's right. the nonprofit system. There's UNRWA, the UN yep. system for which serves refugees in the West Bank and, and in Gaza. Right. Um, and there is the private system. And, right. and this is in West Bank and Gaza. There's separately, you talked about East Jerusalem having mm -hmm. uh, more of a medical infrastructure in East Jerusalem and people having access to, um, or East Jerusalem having access to Palestinian facilities and also some Israeli mm -hmm. facilities. Uh, and also there being a sort of care vacuum there, uh, right. neglect by Israel and uh, exactly. Israel's prevention of the PA uh, having a role in East Jerusalem. Right. And right. then you also brought up medical tourism and yes. the dynamics of medical tourism. Right. And the Israeli, oh, and the permit system by right. which Palestinians seek access to care in Israel or in East Jerusalem? Uh, or in, sometimes in the West Bank. So a lot of patients from the Gaza Strip still have to apply for an Israeli-issued permit to go to the West Bank to get care. Um, so there's, to go anywhere, basically. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm flashing. I, I imagine many of our listeners are from the U.S. and I'm thinking about how we have... Um, specific hospitals that are known for certain things that, that, that attract people. I grew up in Atlanta and there's an excellent children's hospital hospital in Atlanta and people would come from all over the South and maybe from other parts of the country and, and go there to bring their kids for care right. that they needed that wasn't available in Alabama or even further afield than Alabama that they needed to get. So they would come to Atlanta, no permits required. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, that's a matter of sometimes trying to seek superior care or having a choice, the financial means, or maybe you've been sponsored. Um, but for Palestinians, if you don't get the permit, often there's there's no alternative. Um, and, you know, with health ailments, they especially advanced cancers and autoimmune disorders, they need treatment quickly. So the permit system, which was kind of you know, it, it kind of introduced as a way to kind of expedite this is really just this kind of bureaucratic obstacle that often keeps people from getting care that is, you know, literally an hour away in terms of geography. Thank you. Okay. 
So holding the permit system in our head and, and but putting putting it aside for just a moment, I want to ask you before we dig into um, more of the challenges, are there any positives in this health system? What what what's working? So um, it's a tough question, but like with with many countries throughout that region and really many countries around the world, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, you had a lot more deaths from infectious diseases, from malnutrition, from accidents and injuries, because we didn't understand how injuries could get infected or, you know, how to maintain blood loss, all these kinds of outcomes um, that then you look at a context like Palestine that stem primarily from being a neglected country living under empire and colonialism. And even our knowledge of public health and disease was still developing at this time. So throughout the 20th century, as you saw with, with other parts of the world, but especially as the region um, you know, known as the Middle East began to develop, you start to see, including in Palestine, what is known in public health as an epidemiologic transition, where you start to see fewer deaths by infectious disease. So people aren't getting cholera outbreaks and things like that, or measles. Um, longer lifespans for people. Um, you start to see um, lower infant and maternal mortality. So fewer you know, mothers dying in childbirth, few, fewer babies dying in childbirth or as infants. And then you, that the, the, the transition part is that eventually you start seeing more deaths from non-communicable non-communicable diseases like stroke, like heart attacks, et cetera, in part because people are living longer. So you also start to see Alzheimer's and dementia, right? This is just, this is what happens. And this, again, this is a trend that is really commonly seen in general as countries develop socioeconomically. So today, the main causes of death um, in Palestine are really quite similar to what we would see in any country around the world, including here in the US. Number one is heart disease, two is stroke, and three is diabetes. These are all you know, diseases that we all see, understand, um, family members have, we have had. Um, they're kind of known as lifestyle diseases, right? Um, and in Palestine, even just since 1990, specifically, you've seen really significant changes in health, some of which are positive. And the reason why 1990, this is when we kind of start to see this, is that until this point, there really wasn't good data collected on Palestinian health. It was often reported with Israeli health. It wasn't segregated data. So um, a lot of when you look at World Bank or other places that collect data on this, it kind of starts in the early 90s. Um, so life expectancy in 1990 in Palestine was just about 68 years old. Today, it's closer to 74, 75 years old. Um, as typically happens when women are afforded more educational opportunities and more opportunities to delay marriage, choose education, choose work, make their own life choices. We've seen contraceptive use increase and the average number of children per woman has gone down from six or seven or eight um, in 1990 to today, three or four. Still high by global standards, but a big decrease over a generation. Um, the number of deaths related to pregnancy or childbirth, and you know, this is infant and maternal mortality. This is kind of seen as like a baseline measure for how you look at health systems. It has greatly decreased. Um, immunization rates for standard vaccines like measles, mumps, et cetera, have been really at or just under 100% in recent decades. Um, and this is a lot due to health sector development, but also NGOs working in the region. And I think in general, 
Um, Palestinians would say they do have access to more advanced care today than they did 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and there are a lot of, I mean, it's a very young population, more than half the population is young. And I think with the right resources, they could really make a difference in the country. They're going to medical school, they're going to nursing school, they have ideas for healthcare startups and things. There's no shortage of potential. Um, but I think, unfortunately, it's hard to look at the future trajectory of life, especially when you look at predicted population growth in what is going to be undoubtedly a shrinking land. And it's hard to feel optimistic um, looking at that. So I think looking at big picture, yes, we've seen improvements. We've seen these improvements around the world. Um, but when you drill down, it's really very either big efforts like immunization campaigns or kind of short-term efforts. You're not seeing a lot of health promotion or health prevention or investment. And I, and I know we're about to talk about that stuff. Great, thank you. I, I really appreciate you laying out this this bigger picture and, and over time and giving us, uh, you're, you're training us also, your, your audience, in how to think like a demographer, how to think like a, like, like a public health expert, how to think in terms of populations um, where individuals and individual lives matter and are and are meaningful but we're looking at we're looking at trends we're looking for right. trends and thinking about them um so i really i really appreciate that uh this 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 view that you're giving us and this modeling that you're giving us both the expertise and the and the process of how to do this kind of thinking mm -hmm. um so so as you said so looking not just at the positive let, let's talk about the main the main challenges Palestinians face in receiving healthcare and also in, in providing healthcare. Yeah, um, so this is this is much easier to discuss, right? Um, so you noted this at the beginning of the conversation, but because of geographic, economic, political, um, class-based fragmentation of Palestinians, both within the territories and between them, um, there are a lot of barriers to receiving care that can differ significantly based on where you live, how much money you have, and what your citizenship status is. Now, I don't think anyone's any stranger in more money, meaning greater access to care, but it's really, um, it can be within the same family in, in Palestine, depending on who has access to what. And, and let's remember, Palestinians are just about five and a half million people. So when we're looking at these huge disparities, it's really I think poignant. Um, so I think Gaza is probably the most acute example of these kinds of disparities. And that's in large part due to the blockade, of course. Um, so because of the blockade, which is now on its 16th year, wow, there are a lot of forms of health equipment, especially those that require radioactive materials that are restricted or banned entirely from entering. Um, so for those people who need advanced diagnostics or scans, especially for ailments like cancer or certain types of advanced brain surgery, heart surgery, prosthetic um, surgery, or other procedures, you just can't get this care in the Gaza Strip. It's not about how much money you have. It's just not there. Um, so either you find a way to get out with your own financial means, which the poverty rate in Gaza is so high that that's not the case for almost everyone. You have to apply for a medical permit to leave. Um, this is 
and and this sounds like oh you just you apply for a medical permit but this is a really difficult really stressful process it can take months um, permits can be denied or increasingly we're seeing them be delayed to the point where people are missing important appointments and dozens of people have died while waiting for a permit approval um the, the World Health Organization has been collecting data on this since 2011 or 2012, and you can really see this distinctive dip in approvals and increase in patients dying. Now, are these some patients that may have, you know, regardless of the care they received, died anyway? Undoubtedly some, right? Some things are just too advanced. Um, but the fact that there is this barrier between someone and their family, right, who is in like potentially the most vulnerable, stressed place of their life, and then you have to navigate this permit system, it's just injustice on top of injustice. Um, so on top of the fact that that medical equipment can be restricted, a lot of like the basic materials needed for building and in Gaza, especially in many cases, rebuilding health facilities after they've been bombed um, or just building enough to keep up with population growth. It can be these materials can be very difficult to acquire, again, based on Israeli restrictions. In this case, this dual use list, which is the list of items restricted from entering Gaza because of their supposed uh, dual use for military purposes. Um, and so some stuff on there you may understand, some stuff seems to make no sense. There are many types of cement and pipes and other basic materials that are needed to build or maintain structures. It's very difficult to get those in. Um, and that's why it's so especially unjust when Israel bombs these facilities in Gaza, because some of them will never be rebuilt. Um, a lot of the materials that do go in, uh, people prioritize housing and things like that. So sometimes, I mean, you will see destroyed health facilities that are just, they just remain destroyed. Um, and whatever facilities are existing just somehow have to manage the capacity. Um, in the West Bank, you of course, you don't have the, the blockade, but you do have this really complex and robust infrastructure of military occupation, which, although not to the extent of the blockade, does limit who and what can enter the West Bank. And so you still see some of these same barriers to care, not as grave as the situation in the Gaza Strip, of course. Um, but there are still people from the West Bank who will need those same medical permits to enter hospitals in either East Jerusalem or Israel um, for life-saving care that they can't get in the West Bank or is otherwise limited. All the beds are taken. There's only one physician that's kind that that's kind of specialist and they can't see you at the moment, whatever reason. Um, and then also in the West Bank, the, the physical manifestation of the occupation within the territory. And this is something that the Gaza Strip does not have. Um, you have the dozens or sometimes hundreds of checkpoints often manned with armed soldiers throughout the territory. Um, there's, of course, a separation wall, which separates not just people from their land and from their schools, but sometimes from the nearest health facility. Um, you have, and I saw this a lot when I was there in the fall, like ditches and gates that the Israeli military can close and just like mounds of dirt or rubble or trash or whatever they can find to sometimes block entire roads or close villages or close cities. And then there's like the, the land in the West Bank is 
you know, increasingly being dedicated for use in settlements or for settlement infrastructure, roads for settlements and fences for settlements. And it's carving out the passable parts of the West Bank that make it more difficult for Palestinians to travel to the cities where health facilities may be, or, or for ambulances even to travel around the territory to get patients and take them where they need to go. Um, you know, increasingly with these raids in the West Bank, we've seen these reports of ambulances blocked from getting a patient that's like right on the floor in front of them or being blocked from going back to the hospital. Um, I always cite the many reports of women in the West Bank who you know, gave, give birth at a checkpoint and women and infants dying because of, can we even imagine the reality of giving birth at a military checkpoint? I mean, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's inhuman, um, the way that the, the health situation is handled. Um, in terms of giving care, I guess it's simply a lot of the same restrictions just applied to the other side. Um, so physicians, nurses, health personnel, like these are just people that are living in this village or that village that are commuting to work frequently. They're facing the same movement restrictions, getting to and from their place of work. Um, this may delay them or block them entirely. And so if you are a patient and you are able to show up to your appointment, um, maybe your doctor couldn't. Your doctor's stuck at a checkpoint. Your doctor's village is closed. Um, or your doctor is there, but they're covering for somebody who couldn't make it in that day. And I did focus groups in the West Bank this fall, and I heard, because Nablus was closed at the time, of nurses who they, they were making like TikTok videos of their eight, nine hour commute to their hospital when they live 15, 20 minutes away. Um, and, you know, trying to make light of it, of course, because what else are you supposed to do, but incredibly traumatic. And then you get to work and you're, you're expected to work a 12 hour shift with a smile on your face, you know? Um, so perhaps not surprisingly, you see a lot of brain drain of physicians and other highly skilled medical personnel um, because there just aren't enough stable and well-paying jobs um, and so for some, uh, we, we can't blame them who graduate from medical school, they choose to practice med medicine abroad, where they have better opportunities for work, will get paid more and can send money to their families. And it's a more, more sustainable form of income. Um, there's, you know, the lack of what facilities themselves may have, um, especially in the Gaza Strip, there's been shortages of IV bags, of gauze. And so we've had to see a lot of creativity in terms of how patients are treated. And sometimes not just creativity, but just kind of desperation, like using um, an incubator for multiple infants that's meant to be used for one or this kind of underground um, prosthetics manufacturing that happens in the Gaza Strip because they just can't get the amount of prosthetics that they need. Um, and like, there has been a lot of research done on all of this, right? Like on the how the blockade, the occupation, the land seizures, um, the home demolitions, all of that has impacted health. And my, I mean, I'm myself included. Um, but, and this is another thing I wanna explore in the fellowship, I think it's also important to look at the deficits in Palestinian governance as well. Um, to put it simply, health has just not been a priority for the arms of Palestinian governance. I mean, it's it's hard to know what, what really is, but health and well-being of the population is certainly not. Um, you've seen the Palestinian Authority almost year after year increase the security budget while either keeping the health budget where it is despite increased population need, or in some years we've actually seen it dip a little bit. Um, so you're just not seeing investment 
in public health infrastructure, um, not just to keep up with population growth, but this is a uniquely traumatized population that needs specific health care. It's, it's a double injustice to not do whatever is possible with your own power, despite how limited it may be to meet those people's needs. You've seen no creativity um, or even, even acknowledgement of needed changes to the medical curriculum or how to practice medicine when movement is restricted. Like I heard from nurses who would show up to their shift, you know, nine hours late and actually be like reprimanded by their managers. And I'm like, you showed up after all that. That's, I, I can think of, you know, most people would not even attempt to. So there's just not this acknowledgement of the realities of the situation. It's just supposed to be a business as usual proposition. Um, so when I was in the West Bank in the fall, a lot of people, of course, and I think I mentioned this to you in an earlier conversation, but of course they point to the restrictions of occupation. Of course they do. That's number one. Um, but they were in, in some ways just as frustrated with the PA's lack of interest and lack of attention to what can be done, despite what everyone knows are the restrictions of the occupation. And it's it's, it is important that we need to point out how and why the occupation, the blockade, the entirety of the settler colonial project restricts Palestinian health. But if we really wanna help Palestinians, we also need to be very clear-eyed about the fact that within the territories, policymakers and politicians just don't pay enough attention to this either. Everything is on a short-term basis. There's no vision for how to build a Palestinian health system that contributes to liberation as opposed to literally increasing dependence on donors and NGOs and even on Israel. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard to summarize all the barriers to health. And I, I attempted to do so in that, but I really hope I'm going to explore a lot of this, I think, um, coming up on a more uh, nuanced basis. This is so great. Thank you. I look forward to your, to your exploration <laughs> on more nuanced basis. And I know that there are a a lot of experts and practitioners you want to talk to and, and yeah. go into certain issues uh, in more depth, which um, we're lucky enough to get to have you for a year. So we're going to get to host your host your conversations and, and hear where you want to go and what you want us to be thinking about. But that was a really powerful summary of uh, the ways in which occupation and apartheid, the Israeli regime, are, are, are blocking access and also the neglect and disinvestment um, mm -hmm from the Palestinian Authority and 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 how that works in very concrete ways. So thank you for that. That was really, that was very powerful. Um, but I want to ask you more about aspects of health that are specific to the situation of living under military occupation, uh, not just in the, in these very concrete ways that you just gave us about um, uh, about checkpoints and lack of access and, and closure, but to think about um, things like settler and IDF violence or the constant threat and insecurity that goes with living in the presence of armed soldiers and settlers as a health issue or thinking about closures or arrests of children in the middle of the night, the soldiers breaking into homes in the middle of the night, administrative detention, uh, the numbers more than, more than 900 Palestinians are right now being held in administrative detention, the highest numbers I think in 20 years, I think that's what I read. Um, so I want to ask you to talk about that. And, and before I hand over the mic, I just I want to reference your piece in The New York Times from December of 2022. You, it, the piece is called, As a Researcher, I Study the Health of Palestinians 
it's time to pay attention. And you talked, uh, you you quoted, um, or I'm, I'm quoting you to you, where you talked about multiple burdens in access to healthcare leading to, quote, predictably high rates of depression, stress, anxiety, and insecurity. And you also talked about people, people um, referring to drones and the sound of drones as psychological torture. So will you, will you talk to us a little bit about those aspects of how occupation shapes health? Yeah, I mean, God, this is the part that is so, in many ways, like so many parts of it are quantifiable. Like we can count some of this stuff, but so many parts are intangible, unquantifiable, or, you know, people are trying to make do. And so they persist, you know, and, and many people, you know, call that resilience and see that as a positive. And, and I think it is. Um, but it's kind of asking people to persist despite like circumstances that none of us can imagine. I mean, just the totality of it, like, I think this is why I, I could hand you a 100 page report with stats about all of this stuff. I mean, those reports exist. Denied permits, number of checkpoints, births at checkpoints, like we could do that. And I think that's to many people just kind of abstract. And so that's why I think like, it's so important, even if you're a Westerner to go to the West Bank and not go on like a bus tour to Bethlehem, right? But like, see a checkpoint. I mean, once like you don't, you know, and, and then imagine like having to traverse that every day for work or, um, you know, knowing that there will be armed guns trained at your car that your children are driving in or seeing the settlers on the road. I mean, and um, a menace that, you know, that if something happens to you, there will be no justice, there will be no accountability. You will likely be blamed. Um, likely nothing will happen to the perpetrator, you know, depending on the circumstances. I, I can't quantify, you can't quantify that. It's impossible to do so. And in many ways, it's depressing to have to try to do so, like to, you know, I think so often the work of Palestinians in media is attempts to kind of like humanize the crisis, the conflict, you know, here is a story of a young girl whose permit was denied, who needed brain surgery and passed away. Here is, you know, a story of a political prisoner who was, you know, had cancer and was, their needs were neglected. Like there's so many stories and they're all important to tell. Um, but it's very difficult, I think, to it, it it feels every article I've ever written or I feel is unfinished because there's so much context that I don't know how to explain. And, um, you know, I referenced that in the piece as well, like the, the futility of trying to measure some of this. I mean, in this recent study, it was qualitative. So I was I wasn't, you know, counting. Right. I mean, to, to minimize it, I was trying to interview people and get their experiences. But even when talking to them, it was like, how do I make this sound like what it really is because you know something about trans taking it from an interview and then writing it up and putting it in a nice little format like still even that disconnects you from like the reality of looking that person in the eye and you know 
hearing what they have gone through and knowing that if you picked any person at random on the street, they would have a story that happened to them, happened to a cousin, happened to a family member, something they saw outside their home, outside their village. Um, and I think, yes, ultimately health is probably the one of the ways to measure that, you know, at least in terms of mental health. But again, like what is the real benefit of, you know, you've seen studies that are like X percent of children in Gaza have, you know, PTSD. It's like, well, of course, you know, it's not PTSD even it's ongoing. It's, it's not memories of trauma. It's ongoing trauma. It's living in trauma. And it, it all feels a bit futile to limit it to that. And yet, you know, as part of an evidence-based approach, like you have to do that too. Um, so that's something that I'm really working on in, in my career is how best to balance the humanity with the science and in a way that forces action and doesn't just garner sympathy. How best to manage, how, how best to balance the humanity with the science in a way that forces action and doesn't just garner sympathy. That's what you just said. That's quite a, a maxim or a or a goal or an ambition. Thank you for get, sharing get back that. To me in 40 years. <laughs> um, hopefully sooner sooner than that, uh, yeah. things will be very different in, in the direction of, of justice. Well, I wanna I, I wanna, as you just said, get back to me in 40 years. So you're persisting, you're really trying to measure and to describe and to analyze and and to tell this story. And so um, I want to ask you, like, what does looking at the health of of this society tell us? What more broadly than than health? What does using the 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 lens of health tell us about Palestine and Palestinians? Um, so I think I said something to this effect in our, my introductory podcast, but it's so true. It bears repeating that there's. I mean, it's 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 not, it's, an, it's it's obvious. There's no sector more closely tied to life and mortality than health. I mean, even every other social indicator from education to housing, to incarceration, to food security, to water security. I mean, it's really tied in many ways, right? To health and well-being and ability to thrive and live and study and work and play and all those things that we think of as making up a life. And so I think not just in Palestine, but everywhere, looking at a society's health is is a really important way to get a sense of that society's priorities, not what they say, but what they're doing. Um, and so like, for example, the two of us right now, we sit in the United States, as perhaps many of your listeners also do, um, you know, ostensibly the world's richest, arguably, in many ways, most powerful country. Um, we have among the world's top medical facilities, medical schools, how many pharmaceutical companies are based here, right? Um, and yet just a few days ago, um, it made the rounds on, on in the public health circles that there was this report that US life expectancy had once again decreased over the previous year. And is in fact, despite Americans paying the most per capita for healthcare has among the lowest life expectancies of high income countries. Now we can quibble about some of those measures, what's a high income country, et cetera. Um, but aside from COVID-19, when you looked at the reasons cited for this dip in life expectancy in this rich country, right? That's not supposed to happen. That's against the rules. 
Um, some of the cited reasons were suicide, alcoholism, drug overdose, um, car accidents, and gun violence. And you see even higher disparities when you look within the data at ethnic minorities in this country, especially looking at Black Americans and Native populations. Um, so these are things that given appropriate policies and investment and accountability like this, these are preventable. We, we have solutions for these problems. So I think this tells you a great deal about American society. Um, I mean, I think, frankly, it represents a huge failure of society. But you don't really hear American politicians treating this like an emergency or even really like a problem, right? This is, to me, quite frankly, a, a, a sign of a very unhealthy society with skewed priorities. And, you know, despite what hundreds, maybe thousands of studies on the American health system that come out every year, we just seem inc completely incapable of making like meaningful change. It's it's so frustrating. We just kind of keep hobbling along. And I feel like you could apply this hopeless feeling across sectors, education, housing. We see the problems. We're unwilling or unable, more, more likely unwilling to fix them. And so despite the huge disparities between health in the United States and health in Palestine, I think this paradigm is actually really similar. And that's why I think health is so important as a way to look at a society. Um, it's no secret, like we were just talking about in the previous question, why health in Palestine is poor. Scholars have been publishing on this for decades. Um, as a researcher, like I just was telling you, it can really seem like depressing to continuously try to find ways to collect evidence on this and report evidence on that um, when it's like so obvious. Um, in, in my work, I frequently read reports or articles about Palestinian health from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And if you just update a few numbers and like the names of different officials, they really read like something that could be written today. It's like so many of the same persistent problems and recommendations and red flags and warnings. And so again, to me, um, this is indicative of completely skewed priorities, lack of investment, lack of accountability. Um, and yes, we're talking about health, but really this is in regards to the entirety of, of you know, I guess what is sometimes known as the Palestinian question. Um, how many times and in how many ways do Palestinians have to humanize themselves to recount how traumatizing checkpoints are, to um, like, describe you know how terrifying it is when your street is getting bombed or the house next to you is getting raided you know is it like shocking to anyone that gaza's mental health is so poor um is anyone surprised that if your home is raided at night it's bad for your mental health like i don't think so um and like then you you go into like literally this justification of putting up literal physical obstacles for someone trying to get to a hospital. Like, of course, that's bad for their health. Like, this isn't complicated. Um, and so I think that looking at these as barriers to health and taking them out of the security slash political discussion illustrates, I think, the disposability um, of Palestinian life in many circles. Um, I think this is the reason why the the, the whole issue with like the COVID-19 vaccine issue that was kind of going on in 2020, 2021, 
Um, because it was like a potent example that everyone could understand because everyone wanted vaccines. Um, and, and yet the lack of accountability expected by Israel, despite, you know, and I've gone on and on about this in other outlets, but their legal obligation as an occupying power to provide for health, it was just like so incredibly stark, along with the demeaning and just dehumanizing way Palestinian life was discussed by Israeli politicians including the health minister. Like when he was asked about providing Palestinians vaccinations, I mean, he couldn't have been more flippant. And it's like, you know, people, many people quoted him and, you know, for Palestinians, it's like, you know, they're always saying that kind of stuff about us, but you're just listening now because it's such potent discrimination. It's, you can't deny it. Um, even the cynical way that Israel was eventually pushed to vaccinate the Palestinians that work in Israel, in large part because Israeli companies that employ them were complaining of delays and disruptions. Not, I mean, I think, you know, there was like international pressure, whatever that means. But I, I think if you drill down, it's more likely that the construction sector of Israel was essentially completely shut down. Um, and the complete lack of advocacy for Palestinians' needs by the PA, like I said earlier, like all of that is kind of roiling around, like all the pieces you need to understand this entire problem, this entire issue are really drilled down in these small little moments that relate to health. Um, but I think they can get lost in political conversations because, and I think I also said this in my intro podcast, like everyone you know, gets it, it, it becomes this well, the one state, two state, or you know, going blanket statements about Israeli security. There's a, you know, obscuring, making excuses, and then it's simply put aside because they don't want to deal with it. And then it's like, well, while it's being put aside, and other, you know, people are living unacceptable lives and dying because of this. This is not status quo for them. This to you is an issue you can put on the back burner, but people are, these, their lives are happening now. And so that is what I think motivates people who continue to work on these issues, myself included, um, with the hope that like, you know, as with any movement, there will be some moment where you were, you have to kind of be ready for a sudden change. And like, we need to be ready. Um, Palestinians living in the territories, Palestinians abroad, everybody, Palestinian allies, like there needs to be a plan in place or it's not going to be better, even if the political status quo, quote unquote, changes. Great. Thank you for all of that. So on, on that, on that idea of having a, a plan in place or of, um, being in such a concrete policy-oriented field, what recommendations do you make right now? And I and I I'm asking you that, wanting to ask you talk about, uh, wanting to ask you to talk about a little bit about what problems do you think can be solved now through recommendations and even even through plans, mm -hmm. um, and and which ones can't. Um, yeah, you know it's. It's it is a policy oriented field, right? Like we we see problems, we want to offer solutions. I have to, of course, start with saying it's difficult to make recommendations because ultimately, at the end of the day, nothing really meaningful or sustainable is possible without accountability um, of Israeli and Palestinian actors, without an end to the blockade and occupation, an end to Israel's project of settler colonialism, an end to racist and discriminatory policies. I mean, 
we can try to throw money at the problem. And to some extent, that's been the only basically thing that people have done is throw money at the problem. But you can't just economically incentivize a functional health system that is under military rule. You just, you can't, it's futile. There's mountains of evidence to show it. It's not working. It hasn't been working. Um, you can't recommend past a checkpoint aside from just like removing that checkpoint, like to, to think of it that granularly. There are just certain things that have to happen. This is an entire ecosystem that needs fundamental change, but that, that can't just be the answer, right? Well, <laughs> fundamental change or nothing else. Um, it's not satisfying or it's not even really accurate to say that unless the big stuff happens, we can do nothing. Um, but I think one struggle with health is that sometimes even the recommendations seem unsatisfying. Um, so for example, um, you've seen, so efforts to like increase telehealth capabilities. So the ability of somebody to have a video call with a doctor or like access an app to get health advice or something like that so that people can access healthcare and even see a physician, even if roads are closed or even if whatever's going on. Um, you may, if you implement something like that, actually see increased access to care. Um, but it doesn't address the fact that like there's this entity that has the power to close Palestinian roads and cities, right? So it's like, okay, I see the utility of the recommendation, but it's operating within an unjust structure. Or for example, you're looking at the medical permits issue, like some advocacy groups that I think are well-intentioned, you know, they advocate, they recommend streamlining the permit system, making it more transparent, having a goal for level of denials or delays. But, and again, while, while you may see some increased permits, if that were to happen, you are entirely then normalizing a system that should not exist to begin with. Um, it's kind of like, I think the U.S. ambassador to Israel just announced like with such fanfare that they like have now reached an agreement with Israel to keep the Allenbury Bridge open for 24 hours a day for five days a week. And it's like, look at this accomplishment. And it's like, well, why is entrance into the West Bank managed by have anything to do with this? You know, like it's like or like when they made the Kalendia checkpoint, like you know, smoother and more efficient. It's like, no, this is not the direction, right? Like smoother and more efficient occupation is not what the goal. Um, so when you're looking at health, it's tough to find the balance because health is so personal. Because if it's your mom, you don't care what you have to do, right? If it's your child, you will take help from anybody. And because it is time sensitive, right? You can't wait generations. So it's hard to find the balance when individual actions are tied to bigger political questions. Um, but in in last fall or fall of 2021, um, I did a study for Al-Shabaka, who I know you've done some webinars with, uh, about building a Palestinian-led vision for liberation. And health was part of that. Um, I interviewed Palestinians from around the world, and they actually had some tangible and helpful recommendations um, that I think are quite doable in current conditions, like um, emphasizing preventive care so that Palestinians do suffer from, um, you know, more advanced ailments less and need less dependence on Israel and donors and donor services and stuff, um, incentivizing ways to keep Palestinian doctors in Palestine so that they 
aren't going abroad so that you're able to attract specialists um, in needed fields. Um, and just like the broader disconnection from the, the post-Oslo vision of what a Palestinian healthcare system is supposed to look like, which was primarily designed by donors and not by Palestinians, um, to and build something different. Like that's not impossible. There's, I, I, can't, I, I can't think of a good justification why we wouldn't be able to do something like that if there was political will, which there's not. Um, I'm not saying any of this would be easy, but it would give Palestinians specific aims to strive towards liberation while still being realistic about what is possible at the moment. And I think it's, 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 it's a disservice to not also be pragmatic and offer solutions that are not possible. Um, so I think that leaves us with having to find ways to do both which is argue for that just political resolution with accountability, the big thing, but then also find just ways to manage the, the, the problems and challenges people have today. Um, we can do what's possible while advocating for our ability to do what isn't yet possible. Um, and things can change very quickly, right? Like, I mean, the, the situation in Israel right now seems quite tenuous. We don't know what things will be in 10 or 15 years. Um, and again, like I said earlier, Palestinians need to be ready. So it's not enough to just kind of hobble along and call for an end to something. Um, we need to also create what we want to be there when the end to the current thing happens. Um, and so that's, you know, you have to keep the on the ground perspective, especially for those of us that are not in the territories and don't have to deal with this stuff on a regular basis while pushing the broader conversation. Um, and that's, I think health offers really unique opportunities to do that. And I hope that that's what I'll be doing over the course of the fellowship. Fabulous. And the, and the, and the course of your career, you've just told us. And the course of my also. career, yes. The bigger, um, the bigger project. Yeah. What, what a privilege to get to have this conversation with you. Thank you well, thank so you. much. And I'm really excited to to hear the the conversations that you want to bring and to host and and um, and to think about both as you just said like what are the areas that we need to be thinking about that really need to be interrupted right this moment and where there are pragmatic potential solutions that could save lives and also what does it look like to envision and plan for liberation via health or the health the health aspects of liberation and being ready as you just said. Um, yeah. What does it look like to get ready and to be ready? These are really powerful conversations. And I'm so grateful that you are, are starting us off down this road. And, and in today's conversation, really giving us the um, a, a, a view of what issues are on the table when we're looking at Gaza and the West Bank. I know that we'll be looking yeah. at Palestinians more broadly in future conversations also, but really specifically looking at, at um, Gaza and the West Bank today. This was really fabulous. So thank you so much, Yara. Thank you, Sarah Ann, for having me. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Uh, make sure to check out the FMEP website for resources related to this podcast, for Yara's publications and her research, and for lots of other rich content related to Palestine and to Israel. Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so you can stay up to date. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one, on YouTube. And with that, I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, signing off until the next episode of FMEP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us.